Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Joe from Answers and Reason made a video a short while back entitled 10 Questions for Theists, and it's a nice change of pace to be asking the questions instead of answering them, so I thought I'd ask my own questions. Who created God? Just kidding. What is your credence in your version of theism, as in what is the likelihood of theism by your lights? Assigning too specific a probability to broad metaphysical questions feels a bit silly to me personally, and for the sake of clarity, sometimes I'll say that my credence in atheism is about 0.9, but really that just translates to a high credence in atheism. I strongly agree with the statement, God probably does not exist. Now take the proposition, God exists. Are you absolutely certain that P is true? Do you strongly agree or merely agree? Where do you fall on this scale? So typically when people who are having a philosophical discussion bring up certainty, they're referencing uh, Cartesian certainty, the notion that uh, you can be so certain of something that it's basically impossible to doubt. This uh, is often traced back to the idea that if at least I'm thinking, then there has to be an agent that's thinking, right? So I can be totally certain of that. The problem is that even there, what you're doing is you're having to trust your reason. And are you Cartesianly certain about your ability to reason properly? Um, probably not. And if you're not uh, absolutely certain of that in the Cartesian sense, then how could you use your reason to come to the conclusion that if you are having this thought, then you must exist? That would be uh, to use something that you're not Cartesianly certain about to try and establish something that you think you can know with Cartesian certainty. I think this is a problem. It might surprise you to hear loyal Christians say that the God he claims to have a relationship with is one that he doesn't have that level of certainty about. But as I've just said, I'm not sure you can have that level of certainty really about much of anything. Maybe not even your own existence. So what help is it really? If somebody asks me if I'm certain about Christianity, I'll say yes, because they probably mean it in the colloquial sense that we've often used the term certain before and after this philosophical discussion. It refers to a really high degree of confidence, and I have that. I'm certain in that sense. What can atheists learn from your religion? As in, what can people who are not convinced of the literal truth of your metaphysical claims glean morally or spiritually from your form of Christianity? Or does one need to accept all the metaphysical claims in order to see any merit in the moral and spiritual claims? For instance, I think Paul's advice in Philippians 4.8 to meditate on the true, the good, and the beautiful is wise regardless of your opinion on God's existence. One of the things that's crossed my mind many times 
is that even if Christianity turned out to be false, I can't imagine a better life to live than the Christian life I've had the pleasure of experiencing. I mean, <clears throat> even if it turns out to be false, it's been rewarding, fulfilling, it's given me an incredible amount of purpose. I don't think I would have chosen any other life. However, if we're going to talk about what it is exactly that makes for um, a better community, a better culture, even for unbelievers who don't necessarily accept the truth claims of Christianity, the propositional claims about God or about Jesus or about the truth of the Christian faith and the afterlife, there's still many things. One thing would be um, <clears throat> the fact that we have the inspiration from a divine idea for some of the best art that the world has ever known. Sculptures, paintings, uh, music, uh, all kinds of art, abstract art, modern art, all inspired because of this divine idea that there is a God that made everything and that somehow wants to have some sort of a connection to you. This is um, a powerful idea, and whether you accept the propositional truth or not, you can still see how the inspiration would lead to incredible works of human creativity. But then also, I think obviously, when we look at the New Testament, we see many things that are great for all of us to live by. For example, the New Testament's emphasis on um, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life, and that He will bring conviction, this uh, uncomfortable feeling, almost like a pain internally that you need to change the way you're living. Well, even if someone doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit, they can still reflect and introspect in a way that a Christian might, to look at their situation, to look at their own life and honestly assess, am I who I ought to be? Even if you don't believe that there is the great reformer of the Holy Spirit working in your life to help with that process, as Romans 12, 2 says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And even if you don't believe any of this stuff is true, you could still introspect and turn yourself into a better person. Uh, there's, there are lots of other things that we could talk about, ways that Christianity has, and the, and the principles within Christianity that are taught in the Bible have bettered uh, governments um, throughout history, individuals, and groups of people. And groups of people is another important piece. Why is it that so many atheist academics actually go to church and are a part of a local community? Well, one reason for that is they see the value in a corporate group of people who feel a sense of unity and a close-knit relationship and connection over shared ways that we live our lives and yes, things that we think. But I think you could still benefit from that and some of the ideas that are taught in the Christian faith within the community of faith, even if you're not yet a believer or no longer a believer. All that said, the most important thing that I think you could do is to accept those propositional truth claims. That's the most important thing. And I think that it is the engine that makes all of these other things I've mentioned sing. But it doesn't necessarily mean um, <clears throat> that you have to be a Christian to enjoy some of these benefits. If your son or daughter began dating an atheist, would you be uncomfortable with that even if they were a moral and intelligent person who truly seemed to have your child's best interest at heart? First, I want to bifurcate this question from another one that some people might confuse in their thinking as they're watching the video. If my daughter came home and told me that she was in a committed, serious relationship with an unbeliever, um, either of my daughters, uh, I would not love them any less. I would not support them any less in every way. That said, um, would I be happy about it? Would I be uncomfortable about it, I think was the question. 
Yeah, it'd be uncomfortable. See, we think this is serious business. We think that this stuff is true. And I, I know you realize that. Um, but the thing about it is, because we think it's true, Christianity is at the center of everything we do and the reason we live our lives. It's We raise our children with these beliefs. And so, of course, I wouldn't be happy to find out that my daughter has not chosen to make that Christianity a central part of her marriage in this way, by making sure to marry someone who shares those beliefs. Secondly, just in terms of regular everyday living, it's much easier if you share most aspects in your worldview anyway, and generally speaking, your religion is going to be a huge part of your worldview. It's going to sit close to the center of your web of beliefs. And so as a result of that, it's very, very, very important. And it's going to be hard to live lives uh, together working as a team, because that's what a marriage is if you don't share these central motivations, I think. It's not to say that it can't be done, but I don't think it's general good advice or that it's wise generally speaking. That's for the good of the Christian and for the unbeliever because they're gonna be bothered by this probably, this constant fact that their spouse is more interested in God that they don't even believe exists than many other things in, in their life. So I would be bothered about it. Um, also another aspect of this is raising children. I mean, this is one of the oldest ones. It's not even in the world of, realm of worldview discussions when we're just talking about it. Well, how, we were, how will we raise the kids? Well, that's a relevant question. How will you raise the kids? And you can say, well, my, my goal is just to teach them critical thinking skills and not teach them what to believe, but how to think. Not what to think, but how to think. That sounds great, but can I tell you that that is a failed attempt? That's always going to be a failed attempt. Your kids think, unless you're a particularly bad parent, kids think you're the greatest thing in the world and because of that they notice what you're into they see the books lying around the house they hear you when you're making a podcast or a YouTube video they hear your comments when you're watching the news or in a movie they see all of that you are going to influence your kids one way or the other um, not sure how I got there but uh, yeah uh, hopefully that will answer the question I know it's not the most pleasant answer but it's the honest answer do you believe in eternal conscious torment? If you do, what does one have to do or not do to end up in such a state? If you don't believe in eternal conscious torment or eternal torture, do you find it as morally insane as I do? I think eternal conscious torment is the most morally unjustifiable, demented idea that has ever been conceived by human beings. I cannot think of something worse than eternal torture. And I can't imagine any crime that would merit torture that lasted for trillions of years, let alone eternity. I mean, maybe Hitler deserves to burn for a while, but eventually you say mercy. If you don't, you're worse than him. I think many Christians underestimate how bizarre this idea is to anyone who isn't steeped in Christian culture. The nature of hell is obviously going to be a tough one, and yes, I do understand why it is that you have that reaction to the notion of hell. So um, the first thing I want to say about this is that while I was what we might call a hellfire and brimstone preacher for many, many years, and by some definitions I still am, it's not, that shouldn't be taken too literally when it comes to fire and brimstone. And the reason for that is uh, about 10 years ago I began seriously considering 
the biblical data as it relates to hell. So this is not in any attempt, in any sense, an attempt to avoid a tough subject or ignore what the Bible actually teaches or anything like that to make myself feel better or my work as an apologist easier. That's, that's not what it was. I did a biblical study and I came to conclude that uh, people who affirm annihilationism or conditional immortality that you will experience um, suffering and then die and, and then it's everlasting punishment in the sense that you're just dead everlastingly. You won't be brought back. Um, I've come to think they have, there's a good biblical case for that. Now, having said that, even many of the people, particularly many of the thinkers in the worldview arena where this video and the one I'm responding to sits is um, uh, one of the things about that that I think is important is most of those apologists, most of those theologians, most of those Bible geeks um, who do believe in eternal conscious suffering or eternal conscious torment don't view it as eternal torture and don't view it as literal flames and literal brimstone, brimstone and literal, literal worms that don't die. Um, that this is uh, language to describe the severity of separation from God. Now, for those that do feel that way, I, there's a couple of things I could say in their defense, those who affirm eternal conscious torment. Well, they have the vast history of the church in their favor, even though this, these two views and evangelical universalism as it's come to be known, were present in the early church. So that, that could be said. Um, but there's something else I think that, that needs to be mentioned here. We can defend their view a little bit in the following way, and this is how I used to defend it. I didn't come up with this, I'm not sure who did, but I think it works. And that is the idea, well here, I'll just share it with you as I shared it at the Rethinking Hell Conference in Seattle, Washington uh, about a year ago. How can God punish people eternally for finite sins committed during a temporal existence? Yeah, um, and in, in, in a sense, I think that this would go for the conditional view as well, because they also, as Chris said earlier tonight, believe that um, death and you never coming back to life is an everlasting punishment in that sense. And um, so uh, I think a, a good uh, kind of common way of thinking about this is, the, and I didn't come up with this, and um, I think I saw a presentation, in fact, Paul, where you said who did, so maybe you can uh, lay that out afterwards. But the way I think of it is, is my own. I think, okay, if, um, if I had a neighbor who had a cat that was always whining at my window when I'm trying to watch TV at night, let's imagine that I strangle the cat. And um, I, I, there's probably a penalty to pay for that. I don't know what it is. Maybe you spend the night in jail. Maybe you pay a fine. I don't know what that is because I don't usually kill. I, I never kill cats. I just want to make that clear. Some people might give you a reward for that. Yeah, maybe. But there's a penalty of some kind. Um, but what if my neighbor keeps buying cats and eventually I strangle my neighbor? Well, there's a penalty for sinning against a cat, relatively small compared to a penalty for sinning against my neighbor, uh, killing him that way, and that's equal to my own life. I may be in prison for the rest of my life. I may be killed, capital punishment, something like that. So you already see in yourself, if you do recognize that the cat is less valuable intrinsically than uh, the man, 
or the woman, then you recognize a stair step of intrinsic awareness of justice such that what is the penalty for sinning against an everlasting God? Well, it would be an everlasting penalty. And then uh, there's a solution, fortunately, to that, which is an everlasting person could qualitatively die for our everlasting sins. And uh, that, to my mind, is how you get a God of ultimate love and ultimate justice um, to represent both of those things about himself in uh, the person of Christ. So there are people who have entered the Christian faith, and part of that was they saw the seriousness of judgment as they were understanding it on eternal conscious torment. And there have been people who have come into the Christian faith, like Greg Boyd's father, for example, as outlined in a book of letters between the two of them, uh, who have come to the Christian faith because they, they came to determine that hell was not what they thought seemed a little bit like a caricature or a cartoon sort of notion of hell. And that gave them what they needed to uh, embrace the Christian message. In any, uh, in any case, what should be clear is hell is not a good thing, whatever you understand hell to be. Judgment is serious. And uh, the fact that we may not like that doesn't make it any less true. There are a lot of things that I don't like in the world, but they're still true even though I don't like them. I don't like that that van went by just then. I don't like that cancer exists. But none of those things change the reality, the fact that I don't like them. And the same may be true of Christianity. There may be things you don't like that actually are true. We would expect that that would probably be the case unless we are just right about everything as individuals thinking these things through. So anyway, that'd be my answer to the hell question. Why can't we be saved after our deaths? Why do we have to get the right answer in this life? Doesn't that seem pretty arbitrary? More would certainly be saved if we could make a decision after we're presented with better evidence of God's existence and clearer information about what God wants from us. Doesn't God will all to be saved? So this is actually a question that does come up and is discussed quite a bit because one of the typical questions that Christians have to face is, what is the fate of the unevangelized? People that never hear the gospel, um, what happens to them? How will God judge them? And I know that's not the context in which you're bringing it up, but Jerry Walls has a great book called Heaven. It's not a very long book, and it's not the fuller book on heaven, hell, and purgatory that he released later. This was from the early 2000s, just titled Heaven. And as he's discussing this issue and the fairness and the lack of fairness that might be there, he offers several uh, possibilities. This is one of those things that we don't have all the information that we'd like to have about how God is going to handle this. But there are several speculative possibilities. One is that maybe God will judge people based on what he knows they would have done had they heard the gospel, because we would say God would know that. Um, some would say he judges them based on the light that they're given, to whom much is given, much is required, that sort of thing. Um, and we would, we would combine that with Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, which says, The invisible things of God, His eternal power and divine nature, are clearly seen through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So we would say, well, um, it seems like people in general don't have a good excuse if they don't believe in the one true God. Now, that doesn't mean that they know anything specific about Christianity. And so one of the options that uh, Jerry Walls offers is the notion that they will get to make that choice at the moment of death. This is an attempt to uh, talk about this, uh, to, keep, to keep the paradigm before death, as most Christians conceive of it being important to have salvation before death. That he says one thing that could be true is maybe after death. I mean, 
who, who says that just because you died, it's like God saying, here, I, I want you, I want you to be saved, I want you to be my child, and then you die, and it's like, oh, never mind. Um, yeah, I think there's some, at least some prima facie teeth to that sort of a statement. So I see the prima facie benefit of that sort of thinking, or why that seems kind of intuitive. But in any case, he has offered that as a possibility, and many evangelical universalists hold that as a possibility. So that is something discussed. In other words, something like that, I don't think should be anything preventing you from becoming a Christian. Now, I don't have anything in the Bible that gives me any obvious reason to think that there is a post-mortem opportunity to accept Christ. So I think the safer thing to do is just to assume that's not the case. But there are Christians who argue similarly to the question you gave, and they think that, they think that that's a viable option. In your mind, what's the second most plausible religion or non-religion after Christianity? If you became convinced Christianity was untrue, what would you be? When it comes to this question, um, even though I answered differently in a recent 10 questions video, um, I think I would say some form of Judaism. And the reason for that is, number one, I already have a lot of the prerequisite knowledge, so it would be real easy to enter that realm. Uh, there would certainly be a lot to learn that's specific to the way Judaism is uh, played out in different denominations of Judaism today. But I think that would be one that, that makes a lot of sense. I could point to um, Yahweh as the one true God still. So, uh, But if you're looking for something more than that, I, I don't know. I'd say see my uh, answer to this question in uh, 10, questions, uh, 10 questions for theists from Answers in Reason. And finally, what are the best arguments for each side? What's the best argument for theism? And of the arguments for atheism, is there one that seems more convincing to you than the rest? For example, Schellenberg's argument from hiddenness, Rowe's evidential argument from evil, the meager moral fruits of theism, evolutionary suffering, teleological evil, Draper's evidential argument from pain and pleasure, animal suffering, doxastic discord, the problem of heaven, Oppie's argument from naturalism, etc. I think a cumulative case is the best each side has to offer, but I still have my favorite individual arguments. I realize that people think that the Kalam cosmological argument is played out, um, but I think that that is probably my honest answer. It's always been an argument that I go back to personally. To a certain degree, some contingency arguments, like maybe Josh Rasmussen's contingency argument, um, would achieve the same effect, but it's really strong. The Kalam is really strong for me. And not too far from where I'm sitting right now, there's a coffee shop called Penny Lane. And several years ago, sitting on the front porch of that coffee shop, I had made friends with an uh, atheist and we spent a lot of time, uh, several months, hanging out, having conversations. And when he understood the Kalam, uh, it was like a light bulb went off for him. So I've seen it work, I've seen it used with other people, I've seen other Christians, other people become Christians and then think of the Kalam as their favorite arguments. So that's probably the reason for that, uh, or the one that I would go with. And you, I think you mentioned William Rowe's evidential argument from evil, and that was powerful to me. That, that's one of those subjects that I wouldn't have studied unless I was made to because of school. And when I studied it, uh, I found it to be very powerful. Not the logical arguments from evil of Mackey, and I know those are making a resurgence, so I'm not trying to hand wave those. But the evidential argument from evil just seemed very, very powerful. Um, it's making a softer statement than a logical argument, but I think it has more force because it's harder to, um, to provide a defeater or a theodicy that, that adequately handles this. Now, 
that said, um, I think we have relevant responses to it, but I think that's a powerful one. And not just because of what atheists have done with it, but also because uh, it's, it's true that uh, many Christians will come to this on their own. They may not doubt God's existence, or maybe they will, but every Christian, from myself to, to I mean, probably every Christian that's ever lived has thought at times, where is God in the midst of all of this? And so I think, uh, I think that's a powerful one. I think um, the Kalam for theism. Now, if you're talking to me about Christianity in general, you might not be surprised to say I would bring a resurrection case. But I think those are my answers. Thank you.